Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring music and mysticism. My guest is Matthew Ingram. He is the author of Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness. He also hosts the Wobot blog in which he reviews record albums. He is a historian of music. You'll see in this interview his enormous collection of vinyl LPs. Matthew is based in England, and now I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Matthew. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks very much for having me back. Music is really your passion, as anybody can see from all of the record albums behind you, and uh, particularly, I guess, vinyl. Yes, uh, I've uh, collected records for, for well, since I was 15, 14, and I'm nearly 50 now. So um, you can see there's some here, but there's, there's a whole load over here as well, and s some CDs over here. So, I, yeah, I've always collected, and, and for a long time, that was... Uh, really my main focus of 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 everything really um so this was a sort of a new departure uh the kind of material in retreat sure you're now known as a historian of the counterculture era which is i think a very significant era certainly in my own development having lived through it when i was in my early 20s a very seminal period in in my life but the significance of music in in that era is especially interesting because we we were listening to so much music back then and all of the same influences that you document that have affected the human potential movement the counterculture especially the uh, importation of eastern mysticism is also reflected in the music yes there's a there's a phenomenon i i quite find it interesting was almost like discovering that there was a sort of paper thin wall between the world that you you're very familiar with and the world that i was familiar with so i've only occasionally over the years i've seen little glimpses of of these things through the curtain um which i think you probably on the other side of um and writing the book i i was actually as though i was actually on the other side of the curtain looking through into the music and seeing oh and that's what that means and ha that's how this this makes sense um and, and yeah it's uh so important to that era and i think that music changed um around that time and um i think that almost could be seen as as happening in the same way as these ideas from the east especially came to came to the west well when you go from elvis presley to the beatles uh one of the major distinctions, I think, is the interest in Eastern mysticism. Yes, although the um, that's definitely one of the the main things. But I I sort of see the um, the sea change happening quite early. Um, certainly in the book, I write from the Beat era, um, and so I think with rock and roll, really, you you can hear, you know, a change in uh, almost like an unconscious uh, awakening um, that you could you can hear in the music so for instance something like 
Presley you mentioned, something like uh, the way he sort of is a sort of anti-societal figure and the way it sort of breaks down the rigid structures of Western society, that's like almost like the clarion call for for the sea change that's happening in society or in, in way of thinking. There's something like Presley's Blue Moon, the use of reverb on that's very unusual. And there's other rock and roll things. There's something like, uh, you know, um, Marty Robbins, Don't Worry, something that I discovered very recently. Um, but also the Everly Brothers, their close harmony is very unearthly and very, very unusual. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's present very early on, I think, um, that, that uh, even going back to something like Robert Johnson, the, the blues singer, that sort of hellhound on my trail, this idea of kind of psychic uh, elements outside of the normal realm of society, you know, coming in through the music. So, you know, beyond the Beatles, certainly. Well, since you mentioned Robert Johnson, uh, as I recall, there's a famous legend about him selling his soul to the devil in order to create music. And I think that's a, an interesting theme. Absolutely. I, I think in some ways, you, you know, coming from our or the perspective, your perspective as someone who's interested in psychic material or studied aware of different traditions of, of uh, spirituality, um, something like the devil in, in that context, he could be seen more as a sort of an earth um, spirituality. So uh, Johnson, although Johnson was, was a bad person and not a, not a nice man, um, I think there are aspects of that that you could see as tapping into Eastern ideas or, or non-Western ideas of, of, of what spirituality might mean. For instance, friends of mine who who I show them pictures of Mahakala, the Tibetan deity, they're like, oh my goodness, you know, this is, this is a, this is a demon. This is a devil. No, Mahakala, he's a, he's a protector, you know, he's a protecting the Dharma. So I think, you know, Johnson's um, turn towards the devil there, I think it's more nuanced than just, a, you know, seeing it within the Christian tradition. Well, even within the Christian tradition. I've done a number of interviews now about Satanism. And uh, if we look at the classic works like John Milton's Paradise Lost, you get a lot of nuance with regard to the figure of, of Satan and, and what he actually means. Very different than the pop culture idea. Uh, I think in Western tradition, we have two ideas. One is, you know, Satan is pure evil. And, and the other idea is more akin to Eastern mystery. Mysticism in, in, in which there's complexity to that character. That's right. That's right. I, I mean, it's not really my subject, so I won't go into it. But I know that uh, you know the Christian tradition is is it, changed, and people's understanding of it has, has changed over the years. But certainly, in terms of the mass culture, something like rock and roll uh, could be understood, you know, in that sense. Jumping into the mass culture, I found it very interesting that you brought up uh, in your blog an album by a, a famous album by a punk rock group. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, something called Pink Flag. Yes. And and you would say, uh, even though they're not explicitly Buddhist in, in any way, you notice that there are some fascinating parallels between punk rock and Zen Buddhism, the violent side of Zen Buddhism, actually. 
That's right. And Pink Flag is a, is a very interesting, immediately it's a, a, a very iconic, minimal, minimalist cover. And, and there is this aspect to quite a lot of, of punk rock. Um, punk rock I always see as, as actually getting back in touch with the original ideas of the counterculture. It's almost like flipping the coin, but it's the same coin. Um, and Pink Flag uh, and, and Wires music, it's, you know, it's a, it has that violent quality that, that, that someone like DT Suzuki really highlights in, uh, in Buddhism, you know, with, um, you know, cats being cut in two and students being thrown from balconies and, um, you know, uh, for instance, it, you know, the teachers hitting their students and the like of that sort of violence as a, as a tool for awakening. Um, but there's a, there's a whole range of, of qualities of that record. Um, that, that that have definite you know zen zen buddhist qualities well it's very interesting most people don't think of violence associated with buddhism and and the examples that you give to be honest i wasn't particularly aware of throwing a student off a balcony or cutting a cat in half I wasn't aware of. I've understood that Zen masters will come with a stick and hit their students as as a form of awakening. But uh, the more violent extremes uh, were new to me. I was surprised. There's a there's a remarkable story that Tazuki absolutely loves, which is of um, a, a small boy uh, who copies his master, um, and uh, he's notices that the master, in response to any question, would would raise his finger. And uh, the little boy um, starts copying the master and he goes around town copying the master, raising his finger. And the, the boy comes in to, to see the, the master and he, he cuts his finger off. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in the way of these things, uh, you know, the boy is eventually extremely grateful to his master for pointing out the fact that, you know, you know, the absence of the finger. So, uh, you know, um, no, absolutely. That, that was a, a, big, a big part of that thing. So the violence in punk you know, can, can be seen as part of that sort of, you know, overthrow. And obviously one of the main things of Zen Buddhism, as certainly as Suzuki interprets it, is it's anti-authoritarianism. You know, it, you're, you are supposed to have an unmediated uh, relationship to the, to the uh, anatta. Um, and, so, um, and so anything that's in the way of that on your authority is, is anathema. Well, there's a paradox there, because if the Zen master is o o obeyed after he cuts off the finger of a disciple, at least, and if that were to have happened in the United States, we would talk about it as the abusiveness of, of power in a psychotherapeutic context, which is was associated with quite a few Eastern gurus who came over. Yes, that's right. That's right. Anyhow, let, let me bring the conversation back. I think this discussion of violence is fascinating, and we're likely to come back to it. But in a deeper sense, I think one might say that mysticism has always had a very direct relationship with the idea of sound itself. One of the things that um, I've picked up in, in, in my writings on it is um, essentially what the uh, Indian tradition the hindus describe as nada yoga which is this idea of um obviously there are all these different disciplines of of yoga so bhakti yoga about devotion hatha yoga um 
uh, Raja Yoga, uh, and they're all techniques essentially to create, you know, union with the Godhead or union with 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 Brahma. Um, and uh, Nada Yoga is is one of these one of these angles. And certainly, um, you know, uh, Hindustani classical musicians tend to think of themselves or certainly used to uh, as spiritualists first and musicians a second you know the music was a technique by which you achieved you know union with the deity so it's it's like from our western perspective or our current western perspective you know we'll we'll understand it as music well that's actually not what's actually at stake it's a, it's a different concept so so nadi yoga so I guess what everyone's probably most familiar with with regards to that is is the omkara, which is you know om, uh, the sound, the sense of the sound, uh, the primordial sound, uh, the root of all sounds, and and that's you know you know very important, obviously, in music. Well, I'm reminded of uh, two books written by my deceased cousin, D. Scott Rogo. They were called Nod. He wrote volume one and volume two, Nod, when he was in his early 20s. He was a psychical researcher, a parapsychologist. And what he meant by Nod, which I'm sure comes from the same Sanskrit root as Nadi Yoga, were the sounds that people hear when they're having out-of-body experiences. That's very interesting. Yes, um, and the there's a lot of aspect of what we might call psychic music, for a, want of a better term, where um, the musicians are are, are hearing sounds um, and transcribing them. So, for instance, Brian Wilson was 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 almost tortured by trying to replicate the sounds in his head, the sounds in his dreams. In recording the recording session for Smile degenerated into sort of uh, into an insanity, and eventually he was unable to finish the record. Um, but even, for instance, um, Paul McCartney, uh, he, he would um, famously um, awoke uh, with um, I can't remember exactly which song it is um, in his from sleep in the morning, and and the song entirely formed and was like went around telling everybody. Um, Hang on, do, did I uh, did I make this song up, or is this original, uh, or is this where's this come from? So, so the sense of being contacted by sounds and transcribing sounds, so that whole psychic element is is very strong, certainly in in this era um, where people are reaching out into that that uh, that space. I understand that Mozart had the same experience, saying that he, he heard the music in his head and he just wrote it down. I, I think he even said, thank God it's Mozart. I think the musicians, and by their nature, um, are, uh, you know, I, sort of on that, on that sort of boundary spectrum, are, are on the thin end, you know, this, this sense of being open to the uh, forces outside oneself. Um, and I think it's quite quite a common thing, and unfortunately, a lot of them have suffer, you know, what we call mental illness problems as a result. It seems as if music itself takes one's consciousness to a level beneath words, beneath the verbal. I know, of course, words accompany music, but pure music is in effect nonverbal. The way I've come to look at it is that. The process of, of listening to music um, takes one to a place 
well, the reason it's a pleasurable thing and the reason why people enjoy it is that it takes them to a place where the ego starts to fracture and and always goes hand in hand with that and this is certainly the something that you see all across the various yoga disciplines is a sense of blissfulness and so i think music is one of the the uh, i i think it's probably the highest of all of those arts in terms of getting in touch with you know that higher divinity it's obviously why it's used you know so strongly in all the religious traditions well there is a sense that music is sacred in in synagogues and in churches and even in shamanistic cultures drumming was an essential tool for putting people into what would have to be called a trance state that's right and, and if one looks at um, um mesa eliard's shamanism um the uh, one of the main themes of all the shamanic music is is the reliance on drumming and, and, and certainly to bring us back to this era um the drumming is one of the key parts of rock and roll and that emphasis on rhythm so i mean you know there's obviously classical music uses these same has the same effects and techniques but there is a sense around this area especially with um you know amplified drumming and the use of reverb that the sort of discovery almost of of the psychedelic potentials of music um, and it's, you know, obviously starts in the blues and then, you know, they have the, the electronic aspects of, for instance, you know, Gesang de, de Junglinger, the, the Stockhausen, uh, the way that, um, you know, music became virtual. You know, when you heard a, a recording before these pivotal electronic recordings, you know, you knew that you were listening more or less to the sound being recorded in the studio maybe with a couple of microphones but then with this era especially with you know uh, something like sergeant peppers you have the the studio as instrument but involved in that is the idea that you know you're, you're looking at a mirage or, or you're hearing a mirage and, and that immediately enters into, into this kind of metaphysical space or, or, of listening and understanding music and it's something now that we're, we're very familiar with we're, we're, we're almost you know, if you turn on the radio nowadays, you will hear something that, that sounds like it couldn't be created in a studio. You couldn't sing it or someone couldn't sing it. Earlier, you mentioned that the classical uh, Indian musicians, uh, the Raga uh, musicians, for example, saw themselves as spiritual first and foremost and as musicians secondarily. And I'm under the impression that when we come to John Coltrane and his evolution as a musician, particularly in his great album, A Love Supreme, which I understand is considered possibly the best jazz album ever, uh, that he had entered into that state. He was trying to transmit some sort of a state of consciousness related to that very concept of A Love Supreme. And many reviewers and listeners and critics uh, seem to agree that he achieved that yes that's right um and i know that very belatedly um ravi shankar actually got to hear it. i think it was actually in the 90s and he eventually got around to hearing um, love supreme he heard some very stormy uh, coltrane music shankar heard things like ascension which were which are very deranged and and i think from that point of view although 
accepted him as a, as a sort of student, never really got his music. But I think A Love Supreme was something that he absolutely uh, really adored. Um, it was a big record in Hate Ashbury. Um, I think uh, Phil Lesh uh, remarks that, you know, walking around the Hate Ashbury, you, you could hear it coming out of everybody's, everybody's pad. Um, and modal jazz, um, which Coltrane was an important exponent of, um, takes a kind of fundamentally Hindu principle or to, to the construction of the music. Um, rather than having chords which progress to a tonic, um, you have a all of the uh, the raga is set in one key, and this is how modal jazz worked as well. Um, so you could improvise anywhere within a set of uh, chords. Um, so you know some of uh, Coltrane's pieces were, would would only be in one key. So you know there was a sort of joke amongst the musicians. So you know what chords are we using in this in this piece? Uh, we're we're in E. Oh, <laughs> so um, but um, no, absolutely. Coltrane had a um, had a, a essentially a spiritual awakening, uh, kicking uh, alcohol. I think it was junk. It was kicking junk, um, and. Uh, definitely i mean he was a pastor's son um but he he definitely saw himself as a, as a spiritual being first and foremost and not with any within any one particular tradition um although you know he he read uh, he he read all the the key you know hindu texts that were very well known at that stage like you know, the gospel of ramakrishna and um yogananda's autobiography of a yogi and and uh, you know the Bhagavad Gita, the translations of that, they've just been made current. So he he was very very interested in in Indian music, and 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 I get I think in some ways uh, as a, as an instrument as a musician, you know, in the incredible skill of you know Hindustani classical music, um, you know that those uh, the, the the discipline of those musicians is quite astonishing, um, and I think he aspired to that kind of technical ability and i know he, he even called his his son uh, ravi uh, and, and alice coltrane obviously went on to have continue uh, that interest in uh, in 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 hindu philosophy and, and music after john died i was a big fan of alice coltrane i got to hear her perform in san francisco uh, back in the day when i lived in the bay area i i found her music a, a little more uh, approachable than john coltrane's music actually but i loved her album journey in Sachidananda. that's a lovely record yes um that was a, with a beautiful uh orange red cover um she's uh she's very she's very i think quite underrated and i i think um so i think it's un unusual that you you know you you were so into her i think that, that she got a lot of criticism from you know the hardcore jazz community when coltrane died and i think she kind of essentially sort of did remixes of his uh some of his later records that were almost like uh seances with with john so she would overdub overdub elements to recordings that he'd made when he was alive so there was a kind of a you know a psychic quality to that as well um and she went on to and i think dovetail with with i think the what what we describe now as, as the new age music genre which um coming out of the counterculture picked up very heavily all those messages and 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 sort of took it off into a different direction away from the mainstream of culture where it kind of 
you know, certainly in the in even either the eighties and the early early nineties, it was still you know a strong you know musical scene. I think I think it still probably exists to, to some extent. Um, but no, Alice Coltrane uh, is wonderful. I was sort of part of the birth of a new age music in the sense that back in the 1970s doing radio in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of my good friends there was Stephen Hill, who uh, created a, a musical culture uh, around what he called music from the hearts of space, where he would only play new age music on on the radio. And I he would be playing the music and I would be interviewing the uh, teachers in the human potential movement and uh, Eastern spiritual gurus, but there was a real sense of uh, comradeship amongst us at the time. We knew that we were on the same wavelength. Yes, it's quite remarkable. So hand in glove, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, I, you know, um, when I met Bhagavan Das, who's, who's one of the people I interviewed for the book, uh, he was obviously... When I spoke to people in, in on the west coast about him, they said, "Oh yeah, you mean the curtain guy, which is the you know the, um, the sort of traditional Hindu music." Um, and he, people didn't really know think of him as as the kind of the be here now guy, but they thought of him as the curtain guy. Um, uh, yes, and, and but I think um, in some ways it's uh, it was it was a, a good thing. And in some ways, in a way, it sort of removed it from 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 the mainstream of culture, you know, in 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 the sense that what 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 was there in all the Beatles records and 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 in uh, you know, for instance, the the, the Bob Dylan, just to choose um, the the largest of the two examples, um, broke off and then became like a sort of a, a plateau on its own. In, in in a similar way that you know something like heavy metal was incorporated in the mass the mainstream of culture. With things like Hendrix and Led Zeppelin, and then broke away and became a sort of, you know, a continent floating in in the ocean. Um, so I think that, that the same thing happened with new, new age music. Although I know that there's a current now of of hipsters, you know, people who uh, you know read Pitchfork, who uh, dig out, you know, the old 80s new age cassettes and things. And there's a real culture of appreciation of that once again. I think. There's uh, <laughs> an interesting thing. I know Anya became a very popular musician in the New Age style, and I see they're using her music these days to sell Kraft's macaroni and noodles, or macaroni and cheese, I should say. Yes, and my uncle is a, is a big fan of Anya's, actually. And and um, the, her music is interesting in a way, especially of this... Um, in the organization of it, I think the way the voices are overlap uh, and she multitracks her voices and the, the use of reverberation, all these are kind of hallmarks of, you know, the, you know, the, the classic kind of psychical music, um, these impossible spaces. Um, yes. Uh, interesting stuff. Well, many of the musicians from the 1960s had gurus at, at the time. I even had an opportunity once to interview Carlos Santana, and the reason he came on my radio program was at KPFA was to talk about his guru, Sri Chinmoy. Yes, that's right, and and he was a big for him and um, uh, John McLaughlin of uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra were were devotees of, of, of Sri Chinmoy. Um, there's a big um, 
the way that the gurus interfaced with the rock musicians was obviously very important. I mean, someone like um, Pete Townsend, the guy from The Who, he, he had a guru, Mayor Barber, and obviously the Beatles had uh, uh, Maharishi Yogi. Um, and it was, uh, it was almost de rigueur. I mean, you mentioned Alice Coltrane earlier. Journey for Satchitananda is, is named after Satchitananda, the, uh, the, uh, the yogi who uh, opened at the actually made the introduction at the Woodstock Rock Festival. So, so, so I think they were very important in, in popularizing those, uh, those, those, uh, those ideas. In fact, now that we're talking about big pop festivals, there was the uh, famous one in, in the San Francisco Bay Area in which the uh, Rolling Stones were singing Sympathy for the Devil uh, while a, a man was being murdered in the audience. That's right. Altamont is always described as the sort of the, the end of the 60s, um, you know, where, where, where everything turned turned bad. Um Yes, uh, it was uh, interesting when I was researching the book to uh, meet and talk to Dr. David Smith of the Height Ashbury Free Clinic, who is, uh, again, interested in, in these sort of ideas, and, and to know that, uh, that it was their, uh, their team who were actually responsible for trying to save Meredith Hunter's life. I think he, he bled to death, and they, the, the, the medic there just didn't have, have enough blood or equipment to save him. Um, yeah, it's a, a, a terribly sad ending to, 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 the, to the, the hippie dream in lots of ways. But it sort of epitomizes, in some sense, the two different directions in which spirituality can go. One might say toward peace on the one hand and toward a, a violent awakening on the other hand. Yes, I mean, there was a famous uh, editorial in the San Francisco papers um, which said that well, what ultimate what was a representation of was the uh, the, the denouement of the culture of nowness so that that was that was what it was all laid at the uh, at the blame or was all laid on essentially these ideas of uh, be here now and and the counterculture's engagement with eastern philosophy it was like now look what you've done th this is your responsibility so um yeah it's a uh, Manson as well was exactly the same who, who was a, a musician um, you know those same ideas of, uh, of of being in the moment and you know even e eating vegetarian food etc they were all um, part of the Manson's ideology in fact you point out that uh, one of the significant books about Manson was written by if I recall correctly, Ed Sanders of the Fugs, another uh, precursor to the punk rock movement. So Ed Sanders wrote the uh, the uh, the book The Family about Manson, and Manson, from a musical perspective, Manson thought of himself as a, as a musician. He wrote a song of he was most happy with was one which the uh, the Beach Boys used. He was his version was actually called Cease to Exist. Um, in, in Manson's charming way, but I think the Beach Beach Boys renamed it. But Ed Sanders um, wrote a um, wonderful book about Sand about uh, Manson, almost in the same way uh, as as one might write a book about about Altamont, as in what went wrong, um, because he came essentially from the same background and culture as as Manson. Um, he uh, 
so and Sanders was 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 the uh, with Julie Cookberg was very important and in, in, was the key man in, in the Fugs, which was a group that is is retrospectively seen as being proto punk. Uh, and and I know that the, um, the wonderful Fugs second album has a uh, liner notes from Allen Ginsberg, so who, who's obviously instrumental. Everybody's sort of you know in, involved with one another in in, in this scene. But um, you know, th- there's a music journalist called Lester Bangs who wrote very you know was one of the people who essentially invented punk, um, and his uh, he was a big Fugs fan as well as being a big Velvet Underground fan when when nobody really cared for the Velvet Underground. Um, and so, you know, there's a very often viewed as being a proto-punk group. Well, before we conclude our interview, I think it is important to talk about the role of the mystical poet Allen Ginsberg in the development of counterculture music. Yes, he, he was a great uh, networker and, um, you know, he, he, there's one sort of key figure of this whole era who ties together the beat generation and the hippie generation and the connection to the far to, to India and Japan and Buddhism and the, it's it's Allen Ginsberg he's, he's right in the middle of it I mean you could you could almost see the whole thing as being you know the uh, the, the the adventures of Allen Ginsberg um, Ginsberg was was actually fixated on on Bob Dylan um, he, I think there was he 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 wept. I think when he heard you know Dylan's first recordings because he he knew the writing was on the wall, and he 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 obviously had a, a, a nice stretch of, of notoriety and fame. But I think he he realised um, that that whatever he was doing you know was being done essentially more effectively on on a grander scale um, by Dylan. I think there's a similar thing that happened in the uh, in the. Uh, in the in the countercultural spirituality and psychology movements with someone like Michael Murphy uh, and um, Werner Erhardt, who who took the initial thing and and you know broadened its appeal, and I think that, uh, Michael Murphy was very upset and infuriated by by Werner Erhardt, but uh, Ginsberg on the other hand made his best to pal, pal up to Bob Dylan, who I think loved him very dearly, but. Um, you know, he, 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 he sort of messed with his mojo, essentially. Now, Ginsberg actually recorded some albums. I heard him perform once at Berkeley with a little, uh, I think it was called a harmonium, sort of a drone and, and chanting, basically Hare Krishna-style chants. Yes, I mean, he famously went on the, um, on, uh, the uh, Buckley show um, and played uh, the Hare Krishna mantra with his harmonium. Um, and his his probably his most well known recording is um, songs of William Blake because Ginsberg's opinion was that that William Blake's poems were actually originally meant as songs. Uh, it's that same kind of way that someone like Byron is can sometimes be you know re understood teleologically as a pop star. Well, I think uh, Ginsberg looked at um, um, Blake's meter and decided that this was originally music that would have been sung. And so Set, uh, his, begins his most famous record, sets um, Blake's poems to music, um, I, which is, uh, he's a, uh, the thing about Alan is that, you know, he, one just, I, I just love him and I, I love 
anything to do with him and uh, wonderful but he doesn't have the greatest singing voice and i think everybody else loved him so much that they never really you know um never really brought it to his attention sufficiently but he certainly he always sort of um saw poetry as being a spoken word i mean howl is most famous uh, as it's uh, as it's declaimed um and, and his recordings of declaiming it well, you know, we could keep going for a long time. Now I'm reminded of another musician from that era who I had the privilege of hearing and who was very popular, uh, the jazz musician Paul Horn. Yeah, and he was absolutely, um, he was a very big, an early TM, Transcendental Meditation adopter, and uh, was at uh, Rishikesh before uh, the Beatles uh, came um, and recorded one of his favorite one of his early records he actually my irish yogis sitting on the, in in the background and he what uh, did a lovely recording in the taj mahal uh, inside which again that's uh, interesting because it has this again it's this same psychic quality of of recorded music the use of reverberation but he uses the uh, the, the space of the the natural reverb of the uh, the taj mahal to record flute uh, it's lovely um and it's, in, it's similar in a way to the way that you know vespers in cathedrals would hint to a kind of a spiritual space by the impossibility of the sound palette so um but no paul horn is a is some nice records yeah as, as I recall, he did music for yoga meditation, then music for Zen meditation, and then he recorded an album inside the Great Pyramid as well. Right. Yes, I think I, I think I've seen that one, but I've not heard it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful album. <laughs> I, I think of it probably as his best, as a matter of fact. Although I I remember um, in the in the days when I was just starting to meditate, when uh, the music for yoga meditation uh, felt very profound to me. Yes, and 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 I think people certainly have continued to and do continue to use music as a form of kind of informal meditation. I know we, we've spoken about meditation in earlier talks, but the people's the way people switch off and, and zone into a piece of music. I mean, that's, that's meditation in, in essence. It certainly is. Well, Matthew Ingram, this has been a great pleasure. I know we've had some interruptions due to technical problems, but I'm very happy to be with you and uh, thrilled to really get a chance to dig into your biggest passion, music itself. Thank you, Matthew, so much for being with me. Thanks very much, Jeffrey. Thanks again for having me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.